This episode of the Designated Drinker Show is brought to you by the Mardi Gras Extravaganza. It's the largest indoor Mardi Gras block party to ever hit D.C. It's Tuesday, February 13th from 6 to 10 p.m. in Union Market, Dock 5. This extravaganza promises to bring together over 20 of D.C. area's best Southern-inspired restaurants, top mixologists, bars and breweries, and rotating bands for a night full of fun. This event benefits D.C. Central Kitchen, so visit MardiGrasExtravaganza.com for ticket price and more information. That's MardiGrasExtravaganza.com. Those who don't know history are destined to repeat it. And those who do know history can skip ahead to the good parts. Today is tomorrow's history. But what will be remembered and what will fall away? Who gets to decide? It's odd, a thing you think of as forever can turn out to be a flash in the pan, while something else that seemed to be nothing more than the flavor of the week can turn out to define an entire generation. Fame and fortune, fortune and glory. The road is winding, and few stay on top of that hill very long. It seems that more and more people become famous just for being famous, rather than doing anything to actually add to our collective story. But there are others, people who remember, who spin our yarns, tell our tales, and advance our story. And what an epic story it is. Art and music, literature and theater, news and fake news, online, offline, MPEGs, audiobooks, and of course, podcasts. Content downloads, uploads, and streams to us whenever we want it, wherever we happen to be. There have never been more curators and creators, never more access to our collective tale as it's being written. Will it be a comedy, a tragedy, a farce? Only time will tell. Hello, hello, hello. Yes, I am Louise Solace, and this is The Designated Drinker Show, the podcast raising the bar on craft cocktails. Today, Serving up some of our very tasty, tasty, tasty beverages is my friend, my partner in crime, and best of all, our barkeep. It's Gina. Hi. Hey, Gina. How's life treating you today? Uh, It's pretty good, actually. Feeling good. Good, good. Well, it's only going to get better um, because uh, we have a really special guest today. And... uh, this guy's pretty special. He uh, has seems to have one foot in the past and his head in the game and his finger on the pulse of tomorrow. I get dizzy and tired just watching him. It's pretty amazing. Uh, <laughs> and the really cool thing about him is he always has a smile to share. So uh, with no further ado, please welcome Scott Williams, our next designated drinker. Thank you. Thank you. It's great uh, to be here. Thanks. Thanks for Welcome. coming. Welcome. Yes, absolutely. So uh, just so everyone gets an idea who the hell Scott is, I'm just going to give a little bit of background because there's a lot here and good thing we have a lot of time to dive in. Um, first off, he's the author of an odd book, The First Modern Pop Culture Reporter Conquered New York. Um, it's really interesting read. I have to admit, I haven't read the entire thing, but I've read enough to found, sound smart, and I talked to you enough, Scott, to <laughs> feel I at least have an idea. Um, but let's—I want to dive into that and tell the 
uh, listeners exactly what's gone on there and how amazing the book is. Um, <clears throat> and then when and then if it, as if it, that's not enough, he's um, the chief operating officer and senior vice president of sales and marketing of the museum here in D.C. Um, he hails from Elvis Presley Enterprises. Yes, for every one of you who are wondering what that is, that is Graceland and the Heartbreak Hotel in Memphis, just to mention a few. Um, and then, uh, and then when his spare time, on top of that, he sits on a couple of prestigious boards, um, the D.C. chapter of AAF, which is American Advertising Federation, and as well as the Historic Society of D.C. of Washington, D.C. So if you're not tired just hearing that, I definitely am. <laughs> um, I can only inspire to all of that. That's amazing. I know. We, I'm excited. Yeah. You start complaining about like all the things you have and then you hear that. It's, like, it's all, honestly all just fun. Every, every one of those things is just a lot of fun. So it's awesome. Yeah. It's awesome. That's a great way to kind of map out life, keeping it busy, but fun. It's yeah. amazing. So, uh, let's just jump into odd. Let's, let's, let's talk get about odd. it. Let's, let's get, get odd. Let's get a little <laughs> odd here. Let's do it. So, uh, what you know, one thing that's interesting about odd is that most people have never heard of him. And yeah. so, you know, when when you write a book about somebody, that you know, I've, this is my second one, and I'm working on the third. And what I've learned is you spend so much time with the person you're writing a biography about that you better like them. You better read. They better appeal to you personally, and you better um, want to spend literally thousands of hours with this individual who you know is no longer, usually no longer with us. I wonder and, if authors who like write on serial killers say the same thing. <laughs> well, I mean, you know what? And I have read where you know they it does mess with their heads because um, <clears throat> it is interesting when you know when you because you know it takes you you have to write and read and proof and edit and yeah. rewrite and you know most most authors say the book has been written three or four different times by the time they're done what I like to say is for me the experience was like reading a book from the inside out because you really you don't just read and imagine what you absorb everything going on so anyway so you know, there were several people that I thought about writing about, and I had come across Odd while I was researching for the first book. <clears throat> there were so many things that just started appealing to me um, that he had done. Um, and so uh, the arc of his life story is both interesting because of what he overcame, how he looked for alternative ways to achieve success, but then also the time period he was living in is very interesting. Um, he was uh, writing about things in, in a different way than anybody else ever had. So if you looked at his work, which was in the teens and the 20s, very much looks like a podcast or, or, or a blog or, a, um, or um, anything like the way we're all communicating now. You know? it, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's fascinating. And he was the first to do it. So in a lot of ways, he was the father of social media when it comes to the style um, that he wrote in. Um, if you just pop into some of his um, articles, and by the way, he wrote literally thousands and thousands and thousands of um, articles and columns and and um, all that stuff is still out there, you know, that people can read and find. And, and he he wrote about fashion. He wrote about celebrity of the day. He wrote about um, drinks and cocktails. And he wrote about plays. And, and, you know, he just gave his opinion. He just basically talked about it, you know, but from a very fun perspective. And so um, by the time he died... Um, in the late 1930s, he was the most read, highest paid columnist in the world. And yet today he's been forgotten. So that's what was fun. And he can, if, um, 
correct me if I'm wrong, I'm sure you will. He made his, he did this by building a really influential network. Correct. Yeah. That's, that's one of the things. Rubbing that for, elbows. For, with for, the, right. For mm-hmm. us as people that are in sales and marketing and that are, you know, tr- make all about your connections and, yep. and what you do, um, the way that his wife approached his success. And that's the other thing that was really an important part of the story is that he would be, he would have lived, died, and done nothing had it not been for his wife. So, you know, he, he also suffered. He, he, right. I know a few other, I, I know a few of those. Well, and and he, those spouses. He, he suffered. He was a, he was an aspiring journalist. So he was the first, he was the first reporter to interview the, the survivors of the Titanic as they left the oh, Carpathia. Wow. Wow. So that was his first big story. So he was in charge of the reporters writing that story. He was the very one of the very earliest reporters to interview the Wright brothers just because he went to their barn and, and talked to them and did a little story long before their first flight. Um, but he he his he suffered from a lot of depression and, and a lot of other things that kept him from really being as successful as he could be. And so ultimately they moved to New York and he was a huge failure. Over and over and over again, he would get a job, he would work in the very early media, in the very early news industry, and then he would get fired for one reason or another. So he was in the bed, fetal position, couldn't move, depressed, could just sob. That's all he could do. It later turns out, I believe that he had a disease called pernicious anemia, but it wasn't diagnosed. And so his wife said, you know what, get out of the bed. Here's what we're going to do. You love to write letters home about our experiences here in New York. They were from Gallup Police, Ohio. And she said, get up. We're gonna, you're going to write a letter every day. And so he started writing a letter, and she bought one of the very earliest mimeograph machines, and she would um, send his letter all over the United States to newspapers and say, feel free to use this if you want to. And so columns started cropping up under like different Associated names. Press? Yeah, well, well. He, well, you know what, what? It was like a version of Associated Press, but mm. Associated Press wouldn't touch him. None of the syndicators wanted anything to do with Odd McIntyre. His wife would send him in, and they would say, no, this is not, there's no interest in there. There's no, nobody cares about this. No stuff. value. And they were completely wrong. So um, he just, but, but his wife forcing him to do that motivated him to get up and get out, and he got a job as um, a publicist, um, in the entertainment business, and that's where he started making connections. He became best friends with some early um, movie stars like Valentino and Charlie Chaplin. And um, then he would write in his column what he and Valentino did at lunch that day and what they wore, and that made his column even more popular. And so he really became the very first pop culture reporter. And that, and by the time you know, ten years goes by, he and his wife can't handle the distribution anymore they're living in you know the nicest hotel in new york they've got wow. chauffeur driven limousines you know you know just huge. like our lives Gina. yes yeah, exactly exactly so anyway so he was very he was very his his whole you know his whole life story to me was very aspirational because here he was hitting defeat after defeat after defeat and yet he just kept pushing forward along with his wife they kept pushing and they found a way to, to find success. And some of those same people that turned him down and said, no, we don't want your column. Nobody cares about that. Were the same people that were outbidding each other when his wife signed um, the largest um, contract that any reporter had ever signed um, in the history of journalism. So, you know, it, it's a great story of how you can overcome. It is an amazing story. People saying no and find success. How did you find him? That was exactly what I was going to ask. Sorry. Like, no, no, absolutely. <laughs> no, that's, that, that's what's really fascinating is like he's a super fascinating person. But 
how, she's right. How the hell did you find that? Right, I mean, and, and why? Know? I mean, I don't know why no one else has written a movie or written a book. I mean, a Not lot of yet. it has. Yeah, but, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think Give it would make. Time. Obviously, I think it would make a great movie. <laughs> um, but um, he um, he had you know because he was a journalist writing in the twenties. The first book I wrote was about Richard Halliburton, who was an explorer. You know, who was also a man about town and sort of fancied himself to be sort of a dashing superstar celebrity. And so Odd McIntyre had written about him. And so oh. when I was researching the first guy, I ran across Odd and made a check mark in my head. Oh, you know, I need to hang on to that. The other book I wanted to write was, uh, it kind of came down to uh, a book about Colonel Parker. Uh, who was Elvis's manager, yeah. or or Odd McIntyre, and Odd McIntyre won. But you know, I was talking to some agents and and people who are in the book industry, and you know, I, I presented this book about Odd, and they said, you know what, no no real publisher is going to sign you for that because um, because people want to read books about people they already know of. Now, if you want to write about Colonel Parker, talk to us. But nobody's ever heard of Odd McIntyre, so they're not going to buy a book about him. Well, So I just ended up self-publishing. And um, it, that in itself was an amazing experience. So it ended up being a huge win for me because um, I've sold a lot of books and no publisher gets a percentage of the, of the <laughs> Yeah, sales. good for you. Win, win, win. Yeah, yeah so it's been fun. And, you know, also I've had complete control over it. And so it's, it's been a real it's been a This is your positive. Johnny Cash story. Yeah. <laughs> you know, don't write about it. Don't talk about it. This is you. Yeah. <laughs> this is perfect. That's right. <laughs> So tell us how you get into the process of even, I know you stumbled upon him through other research, but how did you get in, how do you, how do you dive into that? How do you even start that process of writing a book? Sure. So, so with Odd, um, the most important thing, well, and, and let me just back up a step. You know, the reason why I wrote the first book is because I didn't, I, I love to write, but I didn't feel like I wrote very well. And I didn't have a lot of time and I didn't, you know, and it's, you know, everybody's always like, oh, I need to do X more. Yeah. So this is, you know, this is going back maybe six or seven years ago now. Oh, more than that. Eight years ago, nine years ago. Time back, flies. It really does. <laughs> back, you know, when social media was still a little bit new and how do you apply Facebook and Twitter and things like that to, um, to what we do. Um, in marketing, sales, PR, those. And so I thought, you know, I need to shore up all that. So I started a, a history um, blog where I would write um, I would write about my uh, region that I came from, which is West Tennessee, which is Haywood County, uh, Tennessee. And so I and, and that's also where Richard Halliburton came from. Oh, and so I had done a, a very a pretty extensive blog entry about his life because I just had stumbled across him and thought he was interesting. And then um, the History Press contacted me and said, "Would you like to write a book about him based on your um, blog entry?" And so you know I was like, "Okay." So you know basically I googled how to write a book, you know, and then just di- just dove in. Um, so I guess the answer to that question <laughs> is just start doing it. Um, and, and then figure it out. It sounds um, really familiar. Just Yeah, just jump don't in. Don't know what the hell you're doing, but just jump in and do it. Right. <laughs> right. Just jump in. I mean, you Skin, know, learn little, little learn familiar. along the way. Um, now since that time, you know, I've written the second book and I've joined a lot of organizations like, you know, the Biographers International where you get to meet a lot of people, you know, uh, 
it's an organization where there's so many biographers and you know people who've written amazing books that I personally love and you know where you get to talk to them so I've learned a lot you know in the years since then but you know for me the way I do it is I inundate myself in the subject and so I read I, I for for odd for example he's from Gallup Police Ohio so my youngest daughter and I we just got in the car and drove to Gallup Police Ohio um, <laughs> and I just sort of walked around and tried to find you know, if is there a place here where there might be information about him? Do they remember him? You know, and I found his house that he grew up in as wow. a boy. I found the historic society, and they told me the college might have some information. I went to the college, and they said, you know, let's go look at. Um, we have some of his things, and so we went into oh. this big old uh, storage place, and they had a room upstairs, and inside were photos, letters, documents, things that were stored away, you know, archived that I could. So it was original source material oh, that I could touch. Things that you know he had touched. It had to and, be super inspiring. Oh yeah, it was yeah. absolutely amazing to see all these photos, and and I had already been doing a little bit of reading, but there isn't that much out there about him. So. Um, and so from there, I was able to, um, you know, just, I think the most exciting thing for me, or one of the most exciting things was when, you know, I kept running across things where he would mention things he did. And part of the problem with him is he was, he was uh, an exaggerator at yeah. best. Um, you know, he would, he wouldn't, and he would admit that he wasn't always telling the 100% truth. He was, he was decorating it enough. I, I always say, just, just painted a slightly brighter right, color. Right. So if he said he had lunch with Charlie Chaplin, he may or may not have actually had. So I had to really do a lot of research to separate, you know, the truth from the fiction. And, um, you know, he was talking about F. Scott Fitzgerald at um, Harry's New York Bar in Paris. And, you know, so I kind of thought, eh, I'm not so sure that's true. So I did some research on Harry's New yeah. York Bar, which is in Paris. And, you know, in the 20s, a jockey bought Harry's New York mm. Bar, had it disassembled piece by piece and shipped to Paris and reassembled in in Paris. During and, Prohibition, it, right? And it's yes. where a lot of the a lot of the celebrities of the day would um, a lot of the celebrities of the day would um, go and visit and would uh, drink and would um, um, write. They would do whatever they did. In the twenties, you know, writing uh, poetry, singing it was all these superstars, all these celebrities gathered there. You know, a lot of American celebrities, but also French celebrities. And Odd was part of that gang of people that um, he claimed he was part of that gang of people. He claimed that he helped write their theme song. Um, and so, uh, in you know, I looked everywhere. I could find very little about it. And then on eBay one day. I found the um, Harry's New York Bar um, IBF guidebook, which mm -hmm. is the guidebook for the, um, 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 I forgot what it's called already. Like um, how to own a bar. At, well, yeah, and it was it was their club. They had the little pin. Oh, um, um, International I, Bar Flies, sorry. Yes. International Bar Flies guidebook. I mean, you know how, especially in the 20s, they would have these little clubs and they would really get into the it. You know? Yeah, they would have oh, these little societies. drank. Yeah. There was prohibition. You couldn't get in. Yeah. And so, and so they had, and so at the top of the thing, it said uh, President and Master Barfly O.O. McIntyre. So there was proof. So I kept finding all these little proofs that he was in fact, you know, in these key parts of history where he claimed that he was. So um, anyway, so, so you I just, think it's time to resurrect that. I, I, I think you <laughs> yeah. should. I think. I think. Well, well let, let's talk about it before we start. Well, we'll do it and, and talk about it. So, um, on that note, we're going to give uh, Gina opportunity to. Do. 
Okay. Show, yeah, show her what she, what she has in store for you. So there's a cocktail that you wrote about, right? You wrote about mm-hmm. the, odd, the Odd McIntyre. All right. And it's, um, you know, when you read about it, it's a cognac-based cocktail, which makes sense for the time period because they were in France. It was, it was readily available. It was cheap. Mm-hmm. And it was something that everybody did. Where that drink came from, though, is a sidecar, which is kind of like, you know, a staple classic cocktail. So... Um, one thing that I love about what you gave me is that a traditional recipe would have been equal parts, um, Lillet, cognac, a um, little bit of uh, Cointreau, and then lemon juice. We're going to change it just a little bit because it's almost silly to put Lillet and, and, and brandy back together again. So we're going to use um, one ounce of uh, cognac. And, and is it right? This is the first time you're having this drink. Yeah, yeah. No, I've never had this drink. <laughs> it's, it's, oh, so, so it's, you're in store for something amazing. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's, so you know. um, it's 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 um, interesting um, that they came up with this drink. They named it after Odd McIntyre. So at some point, people knew, you know, Odd McIntyre, his contribution to New York, his contribution. And, and I didn't mention his column was called New York Day by Day. So you know, he was a very cosmopolitan, very um, urban. I think we all want to be odd. We all want to be. We all should of, want to be should. odd. Some yeah. of us are already odd in their yeah, own right. We all want to be odd. Yeah. <laughs> hey, hey. All right. Resemble so that comment. Let's talk. Let's talk about this. Ready? So we have one ounce of cognac in there. One ounce of Cointreau. Um, then we did one ounce of a, a white Burgundy, uh, so a Burgundy white Burgundy wine. And then I put in there um, a half an ounce of a lavender syrup, and then one ounce of lemon juice. And the reason why I did that is because we're just gonna mimic. We're going to mimic the flavor of what he was trying to inspire, mm. right? Nice. So back in that time period, when you think about it, Lillet was new. Cognac was French. You know, these are very, like, trendy things when you talk about, like, what, why why that? So if he's so on, you know, he's on Pop the polls, right? Yeah. right. You know, there's no reason why all these ingredients shouldn't be in there. And lemons were coming from Italy at that time, so he was getting beautiful mm. lemons, right? Mm-hmm. So what we did is we chilled a coupe glass. I'm shaking your cocktail. We're going to take that off. And then um, when you have cocktails like this, what you want to do is you want to take a fine mesh strainer and double strain it so you don't get any ice shards in it. And this drink is super aromatic, so it doesn't require a garnish. Yeah, I can smell it from over here. Can you smell it? Beautiful. It yep. smells good. It does. And um, I realized I only made one, but we'll make another one for Louise on the side when you're tasting this. Great. But we'll serve our guests as a hospitality, and then I'll make and another. I don't mind sharing with Louise. <laughs> Well, I can Absolutely. shake while you guys talk about it. You know, this is great. Okay. Yeah, it it's smells beautiful. great. So wow. What do you think? Yeah, it's fantastic. Here, take a sip of that. Oops. Cognac is the gift that keeps on giving vanilla to. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it's one of those. Uh, oh, it's yummy. super refreshing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's very, very. Even the glass is cold. Like yes. chilled it. So, so very, absolutely, it's very important. Very um, so. If uh, absolutely so, for those tips on how to and when you want to genify your drinks, mm-hmm. you just go uh, designateddrinker.show mm-hmm. and she lists all the recipes and tips oh, and how to. So, and then you can even see all of her other amazing cocktails that she's made in uh, previous episodes. Excellent. Very but, nice. Yeah, she gives you all those tips. The cool thing is, she even like make sure you know what glass to serve it in so that it's nice and open. The drinks open up for Fantastic. if it's something that she would recommend being uh, served in. And in maybe, a fish bowl, maybe we will be responsible for resurrecting the O.O. McIntyre cocktail. I think um, we should try it. 
Absolutely. Scott, I'm in. Everyone listening needs to order an O.O. McIntyre the next time they go to a bar. Yes. And if the bartender doesn't know it, sort of shame them just a tiny little bit. Shame, shame. Tell them the URL to your your podcast. And then the other thing, then they could give them the website to get the book. Oh, absolutely. Which is? Anoddbook.com. Again, what was that, Scott? Anoddbook.com. Easy to remember. (laughs) And there's also, you know what, the book was important, but there's also a lot of interesting facts on there about Odd, because I wanted people to, I really wanted people to learn what he's all about. And Cheers. You know, to, to, cheers. Uh, cheers to Odd. To Odd. To Odd. All right. Scott, Gina, you know what time it is. I do, but I have one joke. I have one joke. Do it. Okay. So they can't cut us off. It's not the. I know, but my favorite <laughs> thing ever. You work at the museum, right? So what, what's what's the uh, joke? It goes, um, "What's black and white and red all over?" A newspaper. That's right. It is, <laughs> and I love it. Yay. Okay, so on that bad joke. <laughs> no, it's perfect. It's the best joke ever. <laughs> so, bad jokes rule. I love them. <laughs> they do, but again, I'm going to go back to where I started, and which is at the end. It's closing time, and we know what that means means we don't have to go home but we have to get the hell out of here thanks guys thank you for having me it was fantastic wonderful thank you